Uh, well, today we are uh, beginning Genesis chapter 30, uh, or actually we're in the middle of Genesis chapter 33, and uh, we looked last week at the first 11 verses, which was uh, Esau's reconciliation with, uh, or excuse me, Jacob's reconciliation with Esau, and uh, today we're going to pick it up in verse 12, where their dialogue and their interaction continues, and then ultimately they uh, go their separate ways. But uh, and we'll we'll look at uh, verses uh, oh 12 down through uh, 20, Lord willing, if we have sufficient time. I want to be careful about time because I know we'll need to get going into the sanctuary uh, at a decent time today with it being Easter. But uh, just uh, by way of review, go back and look at those uh, first 11 verses or so before we read today's passage. Go back and look at those first 11 verses and and tell me what do you remember from last week that we... Esau seemed surprised. Esau seemed surprised at what? Well, do you think he's forgotten or do you think he's for just forgiven? Yeah, yeah. I think he's gotten to a point where he can forgive at least. Yeah. Well, we're actually going to talk about that today. We've left that question hanging here for about two or three weeks. Why has he come with 400 armed men? And we're going to find out today. So, at least I told you I'd give you my, my explanation for why he came with 400 men. And uh, we'll. Uh, what a difference it had made that um, he had had an encounter with God, and now his attitude is total submission, total bowing down, open over it as you then call him my Lord. This is total attitude change, total difference. This is a different person. Isn't that remarkable? Yeah, that is just so remarkable. Here's a guy who. Uh, who so, for so much of his life, everything was about being first. And he was so obsessed with being first. And because he was born second, uh, that just accentuated this problem in his life. As he wanted preeminence in his relationship with his brother. And he struggled for preeminence in his dealings with Laban. And everything was about gaining preeminence. And then he has this encounter with God at Peniel and there on the banks of the Jabbok River. And he just... he's transformed and he no longer feels like he has to assert himself and take first place but he can leave that up to God tremendous transformation in the life of Jacob what else isn't that neat? He not only is working in his life, but, but Esau actually becomes the model of God in this scenario. Okay? If this passage is a description to us, or if it is a picture to us, as I believe it is, and I mentioned last week, if it is a picture to us of our reconciliation with God, then Esau, who is the non-elect, is the one who's actually uh, portraying, uh, is uh, symbolic or representative of God in this particular uh, 
pictures. So it's it, it really is quite remarkable. And, and going back to this thing about the change that took place in Jacob, we, we see also a, a really a pretty startling change in Esau. This guy is a different guy than the last time we saw him. The last time we saw Esau, he was swearing he was going to kill his brother. He was just filled with rage. And, and, and that's the last thing Jacob knew about him. So that's why Jacob is expecting kind of the worst in this situation. But, but now we find Esau and we find him, those five verbs that just come in immediate succession there. He, he ran, he fell on his neck, he embraced him, he kissed him, and they wept together. And we just see this total transformation that's taking place in the life of, of Esau. And we really can't, we can't explain it. We don't know what happened. We, we can explain the change in Jacob because he's had this, this 20-year training program up there in Paden Aaron with working for Laban and God's been breaking him and shaping him. And then, of course, he has this night of wrestling with God there at Peniel. So we can explain Jacob. It's hard to explain Esau and what really happened here with Esau. But he very clearly... Uh, is a is a changed man from the last time we saw him, and that <clears throat> incidentally should be a great comfort to us and encouragement to us that relationships don't always have to stay the way they are. They can change. People can be reconciled, and people can change. Even unbelievers can change, and do in fact change. And so, I think sometimes we just you know in a relationship that's maybe gone sour, we just kind of chalk it up to experience and just assume that's the way it's always going to be. Well, it doesn't always have to be that way if the parties are committed ultimately to, to reconciliation. Anything else? Well, a couple of things that Joseph <coughs> mentioned twice in here, by name, mm-hmm. kind of set, setting up the listener of the, point, you know, the future events yeah. as he's uh, pointed out here. And then the other thing I kind of was puzzled by is whenever I see this kind of thing about somebody tries to give somebody a gift and they don't take it and then they insist and then they fight back and <laughs> I think, okay, are they, is this polite? Is this you know, part of the culture or whatever? I was reading a commentator and he said that he thought it was important for Esau to take the gift on Jacob's behalf so that he would know that he was exactly. the right standing for yeah. his brother. Yeah. And if he had refused the gift, gift then they, Jacob would know that their things are not good. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I think there's, I think there's a mixture of things because I think there is some cultural stuff going on there. Somebody offers you something that's really extravagant. Your first inclination is always to decline it. You know, it's, it's, it's well, this is too much. My first inclination is grab it and run. <laughs> yeah, run, 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 run. Yeah. <laughs> Well, remind me never to offer you anything really big <laughs> unless I mean for it to go. But, uh, but, and that is the interesting thing that it seems like Jacob, as I look at the passage, it seems like Jacob's attitude and purpose for the gift changes as the, as the story unfolds. Because initially, he says the purpose of his gift was in order to gain favor with his brother. So it was to sway his brother, okay? But, but now he finds out that his brother has, uh, loves him and that his brother now is extending forgiveness to him. And so the gift doesn't have that purpose or that significance anymore. And yet still for Jacob, it's imperative that his brother receive the gift. And the reason is for the reason that Jim mentioned is because the, the gift 
in in Esau's receiving the gift, it's as though he is. It's, it, it doesn't purchase his favor, but it affirms his favor. It it confirms to Jacob that he has in fact received uh, received Esau's favor and Esau's forgiveness. So it very it is very important and. And, and it's in that dialogue about the gift that Jacob uses that phrase, uh, I have seen in, uh, I, I have seen in you, or I've seen, uh, in seeing you, I have seen the face of God, he says. And then he says, I've seen the face of God, and, and I have received favor from you. Well, what was the significance of that? Nobody has a clue. <clears throat> Jacob had taken sort of context. Is that what you're saying? Referring to Jacob had taken. Well, all the blessings. Okay. Uh, <coughs> yeah. Okay. He's well. Yeah. That's the point. He he has just come out of this experience where he has wrestled with God directly. Remember, he hasn't even had a nap since he wrestled with God. He's gone directly from his wrestling match with God to his encounter with Esau. He hasn't even slept. Okay. So, so he's come right out of this experience where he says, where he says, he names the place Peniel where he wrestled with God. He says, because I have seen God face to face and my life has been spared. Okay. Then he goes from that encounter with God to this encounter with Esau, and he and he's now dealing with somebody else who threatens his life. God threatens his life because he's a sinner, and he knows he cannot. He is a sinner, cannot look on a holy God and live to talk about it. And yet he has, so he has received God's favor instead of God's judgment. And now he has seen exactly the same thing in his brother. He has come to his brother, and his brother uh, has reason uh, to hate him, and has reason to. Uh, to killing, so to speak. Uh, obviously, he doesn't have a legitimate legal reason, but in his mind, he has this he has this legitimate complaint against Jacob, and Jacob comes to him, and he sees in Esau, his brother, the same thing he had just seen in God. That, that Esau extends grace to him and extends forgiveness to him, and, uh, and, and he walks away with Esau's favor, just as he walked away from wrestling with God with God's favor. And so he really sees in Esau the same thing he had just experienced with God a few hours before. So. Well, so, uh, so now they are reconciled. There is, um, there is one other thing that I, I wanted to, to point out last week, which I, uh, which I didn't uh, have time to look at, but or I may have just mentioned it very briefly, but I want to, want to point it out before we go on from this idea of reconciliation. But he says... In verse, uh, uh, when Jacob is in verse 10, and Jacob is insisting that Esau take the gift, he says, Jacob said, No, please, if now I have found favor in your sight, then take my present from my hand, for I see your face as one sees the face of God, and you have received me favorably. Please take my gift, which has been brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have plenty. Then he urged him, and he took it. Now, what's interesting, and I don't know if you've Notice this, but through this whole interaction between Jacob and Esau, as they're interacting together in this process of reconciliation, what has not been mentioned? The birthright. Okay. The birthright, the blessing, anything that Jacob had done. Jacob's wrong, Jacob's sin against Esau is not even mentioned. Do you notice that? 
And so you go, well, wait a minute. How can you have a reconciliation between people when the, when the wrong that's been perpetrated doesn't even come up? You know, it's just kind of there. It's kind of under the surface. It's not actually articulated until right at the end. We get this very kind of subtle allusion to it where when Jacob says in verse 11, where he says, please take my gift, which has been brought to you. If you have a if you have a footnote or does anybody have a footnote on that word gift? What is it? Blessing in Hebrew. It's the same word. It's the word blessing. So what what Jacob is doing there is he's using the same word when he says, please receive my blessing. He is very subtly, very discreetly. He's bringing up in Esau's mind the idea of the stolen blessing. Now, as we said, Jacob is not actually returning the blessing that he got from God. He can't do that. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. He cannot return that. That's his. Okay, but. But, but in mentioning this gift that he has given of all these 580 animals, in mentioning that gift, he is, uh, he is subtly saying to Esau, I have stolen your blessing. And, and if you will receive this blessing from me, then I will know that you have forgiven me. Okay. So he, he really is uh, to, to, uh, to, steal a, to steal a phrase from the... From the, from the uh, uh, name it and claim it, people. Uh, you know, I think there's a time for us to name it and claim it, and that comes in the process of reconciliation. In the process of reconciliation, when we have wronged someone, somewhere in that process of reconciliation, we've got to name it and claim it, don't we? We've got to say, I was wrong. I wronged you. Here's what I did, and I know it was wrong, and I'm sorry. Because in this process of reconciliation, if if we never really own our wrongs, if we never really acknowledge to the person we're seeking to be reconciled to where we went, where we went wrong or how we went wrong, it leaves them a little uncertain as to exactly what are the issues that are at stake? What are we talking about here? I'm, I'm actually I. I don't want to say a whole lot here because I know this is uh, on recording, but I'm actually in a process where there's someone who is seeking to be reconciled to me right now who has wronged me in the past. And uh, they've made several phone calls and it's, it's very encouraging. I'm very encouraged by the process. But the question that's in my mind at this point is what exactly is it? that they are acknowledging that they've done wrong. Okay, that's what I want to know. So I'll know whether or not they really have a grasp on what it is that that I that I'm forgiving them for. And I'm eager to, of course, forgive them for it. But I just want to know what am I forgiving them for? And unless they name it and claim it, (laughs) I'm not going to know. So that's an important thing that really comes up here in the passage. And it seems as you read the passage, particularly in our English translations, it seems like uh, it just goes completely under the carpet and never gets mentioned. But in reality, Jacob does bring it up and he brings it up as the reason, part of the reason why it's important for Esau to receive his gift. Okay. well, Let's go on then and let's read uh, the next uh, number of verses uh, beginning in verse 12 and read down through uh, uh, through the end of the chapter. He says, then Esau said, let us take our journey and go and I will go before you. But he said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and the flocks and the herds which are nursing are care to me. 
And if they are driven hard one day, all the flocks will die. Bless, uh, please let uh, my Lord pass on before his servant and I will proceed at my leisure according to the pace of the cattle that are before me and according to the pace of the children until I come to my Lord at Seir. Esau said, please let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built for himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the place is named Succoth or Booths. Now, Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. When he came from Paden Aram and camped before the city, he bought the piece of land where he had pitched his tent from the hand of the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected an altar and called it Elohet Israel, God, the God of Israel. Okay? Well, so we pick up the story now. They are, they are reconciled. And the question that comes to our minds is, what happens after reconciliation? What is the nature of their relationship after this process of reconciliation is complete? And uh, Esau makes, uh, in, in the course of their discussion, Esau makes... Two proposals or two offers to Jacob. What are they? Okay. They're going to go together and he's going to kind of clear the path. Okay. And uh, as we'll see here, we'll talk about it here in a minute. Uh, Jacob, for his reasons, declines that offer. And then Esau makes a, another offer, which is what? Yeah, I'll leave some men with you to, to help you and protect you as you travel. And, uh, and then, of course, Jacob declines that offer as well. And we'll talk about that and why he, does, why he declines that. Okay. <clears throat> but but what's, one of the things that strikes me here in Esau is the reconciliation is now complete. The relationship is restored. Okay. Uh, they've embraced one another. They've kissed one another. They've wept together. Okay, Their relationship is restored. Now, Esau is thinking as a man of the world. What kind of a man is Esau? What do we know about him? Okay. Okay. What else? Okay. Okay. And that would necessitate him living how? By, by the sword. Yeah, okay. So Esau is a military man. Okay. Esau is a warrior. Okay. Esau thinks as a warrior. Okay. That's just how he thinks. He thinks as a warrior. Okay. And so, now that this relationship is restored, he begins to think of this relationship as a warrior would think. Okay? And so, here he is. They're traveling along the king's highway. And that sounds, you know, like some kind of super 
uh, Audubon type of, you know, nice, you know, paved uh, super interstate highway that we have uh, in, uh, in the world today. But of course, that's not the nature of the beast. You know, the King's Highway was named that way because kings and that sort of thing would travel down it. But it certainly is not uh, a, a particularly secure uh, way to travel. There are highway robbers and there are people like that along the way. So how does a guy like Esau think about traveling? Farm, yeah, danger, peril. That's just the way he thinks, okay? So finally, we understand now why Esau came with 400 armed men. Esau came with his 400 armed men because he wanted to be reconciled to his brother and escort his brother safely home. Now, that didn't enter your mind, did it? Because the last thing we knew about Jacob, I mean about Esau, was he'd sworn to kill his brother. That's the last thing Jacob knew about Esau. So when the messengers come back from Esau that Jacob had sent uh, the day before this whole event, and they come back and they say to Jacob, Esau is coming and he has 400 armed men with him. What does Jacob think? I'm in trouble. <laughs> this guy's coming to kill me. Okay, that was his reaction. And we can understand that. That seems reasonable. Except Esau has changed. And Jacob is being presumptuous, just as we've all been presumptuous. When we read that the first time, right? When we read that the first time and we went, he's coming with 400 men. This is scary. Why did we respond that way? Because we were presuming we knew what Esau was thinking. It's one of the most detrimental things in relationships. Is when we think we know what the other person is thinking. And we assign motives and we assign reasons to them that are completely fallacious. Esau wasn't coming with 400 men because he wanted to destroy his brother. He was coming with 400 men because he wanted to protect his brother. And now that the relationship is restored, then Esau makes his effort. Okay, he makes his offer. Okay, let's go. <laughs> let's go on together. Let's go to Seir. And I'm going to and I'm going to be your I'm going to be your military escort. I'm going to protect you from peril and from danger. Now, that's the way Esau thinks, because Esau is a military man. But Jacob is a man who lives with God as his patron. How does Jacob think? Yeah, God is his trick. And he's seen it already over and over again in his life. He has seen God as his protector. So what we really have here is we have, uh, uh, we talked back when we were talking about Laban and Jacob. Remember, we talked about the two seeds, the two nations, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And Jacob, of course, representing the seed of the woman and, and Laban representing the seed of the serpent. Well, we have a similar scenario here now. We have Jacob who represents the seed of the woman. How does the seed of the woman think? How does the line of the righteous think? How do they live? How do they make their decisions? How do they, how do they, uh, how do they live out their lives? What are their values? What is their destiny? Okay. And so we have that with Jacob. But in Esau, we have the seed of the serpent. We have the unbeliever. We have the line of the unrighteous. Okay. How do they think? Okay. 
Well, he thinks of peril and danger and 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 he has a completely different destiny and he has a completely different value system than his brother. Now, this is important for us to understand when we talk about the subject of reconciliation that we were talking about last week is that at the end of reconciliation, after two parties are reconciled, they may not they still may not agree. And that's important for us to understand. Reconciliation does not mean that two parties always agree. It means that the wrongs have been righted. That's all it means. That's a big thing. And as we saw, it was a very big thing to God and it was a big thing to Jacob. This whole issue of getting the wrongs set right. But Jacob, in setting the wrongs right with his brother, is very careful not to adopt his brother's destiny nor his brother's value system. And so we see this tension that now arises. I say tension. I don't want to portray it as some big conflict here. But we have this kind of tug of war back and forth between Esau and Jacob at this point. Now they are reconciled. And Esau, as a man of the world, who thinks as the world thinks, just assumes now that since we are reconciled, we share the same value system and we share the same destiny. And nothing could be further from the truth. Because Esau's destiny, as prophesied by his father, is away from the land of promise. And Jacob's destiny, as the, as the, as the owner of the birthright and the receiver of the blessing, his destiny is within the land of promise. They have two entirely different destinies. So when Esau proposes to Jacob, come on, let's just travel together. For the man of faith, that does not work. I can't just hook my wagon up with the people of the world. They're headed in a different direction. Esau's going to Seir. I am going to Canaan. So, so they have a different destiny and they also have a different value system. So that with Esau, he's thinking about, you know, the conflict and the dangers and the perils and all that sort of thing. And that's what he's focused on. That's his value system. But Jacob's value system is what? The things of God, the promises of God, the covenant of God. Those are the things now that Jacob, after all these many years, has finally come to really cherish and value. And so he's very polite. He's very discreet. He's very condescending, or or, uh, uh, maybe condescending isn't the word, but he's very gracious in declining. But nevertheless, he very firmly declines. He says, no, you know, I've got my family here and I've got my cattle here and I I just need to go at my own pace. So you just go on ahead. Now, one of the things that I I hope I'm not stretching the passage here, but sometimes I see little applications uh, along along the way. But one of the things that's interesting is why did Jacob not want to what's one of the reasons? What's the reason Jacob gives why he doesn't want to travel with Esau? He's going too fast. You know, I think as. Christians and particularly Christian families, we need to stop and think about this. The world's got a pace it's moving at. And if we move at the world's pace, we're going to destroy our families. 
I, I, I have a customer I work for quite a bit, and uh, <coughs> it's an older couple, and they own a bunch of rental property, and so I've been working the last <coughs> week or so on this rental property for this customer of mine, and, and we know them for many, many years, and, and so she's, you know, we have all kinds of interesting discussions or whatever as, <coughs> as we have opportunity, and, 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 and she was telling me about how she was having to take care of her grandkids. Uh, because mom and dad were out of town or whatever, and she was she and her husband, uh, the grandparents, uh, are having they have I think two grandkids that they're having to take care for uh, for two or three days here this week, and she was telling me about the frantic pace that they're having to go to just to shuffle these grandkids around to every single possible activity they're involved in, okay, and that it's actually taking. Two of them to do what their mother does single-handedly, okay? It's taking both grandpa and grandma, you know, full-time, just shuffling these kids around, okay? That's the pace of the world, folks. Uh, you know, I, the world affords us a lot of opportunities, and they're, and, and they're good, you know? Sports is good, you know? Band is good. Orchestra is good. Dance is good, you know? Art classes are good. They're all good. And so the world thinks we have to do all of them. And if we let our kids get sucked into that, it destroys the family. And so at some point, you have to draw a line. Jacob's saying, I can't move at your pace. I cannot move at the world's pace. Yeah, Rick. Grandpa and grandma don't have the energy. <laughs> That's true. That is true. Yeah. That's the reason why they give kids to, God gives kids to young people, I'm sure. But the kids are stressed out. And what's most important is there's no time for family. There's no time to sit around the dining room table at supper and, and interact together and find out what the kids are thinking and what they're going through and stuff, you know. Uh, you know, and I, I'll be honest with you, if, if, if I'd been raising my kids without my wife, you know, I probably would have fallen into the same trap. My wife had a lot more discernment on that. And she, you know, we just got to set limits. You can do this, you can't do that. But not only do our kids, our kids get sucked into that, but I think as adults, we get sucked into it too, don't we? We just think everything that comes around, every opportunity, and, and we just live these frantic lives. We don't have time to stop and pray and worship and think and rest. And Jacob's just saying, Esau, you move too fast for me. I can't move that fast. I'm going to proceed at my leisure. Now, to some people, that may look lazy. But I want to suggest to you that that's really God's value system. He, he established the day of rest and a year of jubilee. He established those in order that we might take time to rest so that we would go at a slower pace. And uh, so, at any rate, that's, that's just one of the differences that I see between Esau and Jacob here. That that uh, Jacob is, is simply saying, I'm going to place my family ahead of the pace. Okay, I can't go at this pace. Yeah, Mike. I mean, I agree with all you're saying, but almost, I got the impression here that this is an excuse for getting away from you. Uh, I'm mean, running like crazy to get out of the pace uh, away from Laban. He's yeah. driving hard, so... It's not like he can't go fast. Uh, well, he can't go fast. Maybe he's yeah. tired now. Yeah. You know, he shouldn't go fast. But it seems like to me, he's just trying to get away from himself. Uh, you're, you're, I agree completely with you. Uh, uh, I, don't know if I, I don't know if I'd put it in those terms he's trying to get away from, but I agree with you. 
and I think it goes back to this issue that they're, they're, they're two different seeds. And Jacob recognized he's got a different destiny. Uh, some people wonder, was he lying to Esau when he said, uh, you know, eventually I'll come to Seir? Uh, I haven't seen any commentator that thought Jacob was being deceptive here. Uh, they think that, that Jacob's intention was ultimately that he would go to Seir. And we do see that in, in the years ahead, in the next couple of chapters, we'll see that they do have a congenial ongoing relationship. So there'll be at least a couple other occasions that we'll see Jacob and Esau interacting together or working together or cooperating together. So they do have an ongoing relationship. But clearly, and I agree with you, Mike, is that, is that he's, he's, he is saying, and it is a legitimate thing. He's got, he's got small children, some of them no more than six years old. So he's got small children and he's got, he's got nursing animals. He cannot move that fast. If he does, it's going to be destructive. Okay. So it is a legitimate reason which Esau recognizes, but I agree with you. I think underlying, he's got another issue at stake. Well, there, there are just times and it's tough. And we've probably all been there where you want a good relationship with certain people but they're not of the world and they want to hang with you. Yeah. You, you know, you have your priorities, you got your family, but you don't want to just tell them you're really not the kind of person you want to be. You're, you're a pagan and I don't want to hang out with you. <laughs> That's not my value. Yeah. yeah. And you don't want to be mean to them and turn off and lose the chance to witness to them, but you, you cannot. I mean, you've got other priorities for family yeah. and things like that. And you just, yeah, and I think that's and I think that's exactly what's going on here. That he he is using legitimate reasons, but he has other reasons that are unstated. And I think you're right on it, Rick. No, we don't, do we? realizes, okay, you know, we're, you know, we are reconciled, you know, and the, and the relationship stands as reconciled, but we've got to kind of go our separate ways. And so Esau then leaves and he returns to Seir. And, and I did want to mention this again. Uh, Mike did point out that, that Jacob said, you know, eventually, you know, as time allows, at my leisure, I will come to Seir. Basically saying, when my family permits, when the situation, and when my situation allows, I'll come to Seir. So I do think that Jacob uh, really did intend at some point to come to Seir. There's no record of him actually ever going to Seir. I should mention as well, and we'll see this in the subsequent chapters, that Esau does not actually live permanently in Seir at this point. 
he still apparently is living uh, down around in the area of the Negev and around Beersheba or somewhere like that. But that he's making forays or he's making uh, military expeditions into Seir for the purpose of conquering it and securing it for himself. So at the point, at this point in history, he is operating in Seir, but he doesn't yet actually live there. That's not really home to him, uh, as it will uh, become here in a couple chapters. But uh, so just uh, I wanted to mention a couple of those points. Well. So, so they separate, and uh, and and Jacob makes his uh, makes his break with Esau at this point, having dealt with the with the wrong that he had committed, having now done what he knew God wanted him to do, which was to be reconciled to his brother and to own up to what he had done, and 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 all that's been accomplished. And then Esau leaves, and where does Jacob go? Okay, uh, not Shechem yet. Succoth. He goes to Succoth first, okay? Now, there's two different Succoths in Scripture. The word mean bo- means booths. And there's a Succoth that's down uh, on the path, on the, on the way coming out of Egypt that the children of Israel encounter as they're coming out of Egypt. That's a different Succoth. Okay. This particular Succoth, we're not exactly sure, but we're pretty sure where it's located. And apparently, this Succoth is located about three miles east of the Jordan River and about two and a half miles north of the Jabbok. Does that perk your ears up at all? What's the significance of that? Jacob is now going to Succoth. What's the significance of that? No, no. Now, remember my map. Well, you guys weren't here when I drew my map. I don't draw very good maps, but, but uh, boy, these, you're right, uh, Hal. This really erases really good here. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Uh, so we have uh, the Jordan River. We have the Sea of Galilee. We have the Dead Sea down here. We have the Jabbok River here. This is Peniel. Right here is Peniel. This is where he had his wrestling match with God. He crosses the river and he has his encounter with Esau right across the river. And now he goes to Succoth. What's the significance of that? He's going back across the Jarvik. He's backtracking. Do you notice that? He's, uh, because because uh, Succoth, as far as we know, is right here. Okay? Shechem is over here. Um, he's backtracking. They really are going in opposite directions. Now, we're not sure why he goes back to Succoth, but he stays there for a period of time. It says he builds a house and he, and he builds booths for his cattle, for his livestock. The word it uses there in the Hebrew for house, you know, you'd think of you know, a house like we have today. But it can also mean a temporary dwelling. He built a place to live, okay? Uh, some commentators think he actually spent a considerable amount of time there, maybe even a few years. I, I don't see that. Uh, I, I understand why they say that. I, I think those years can better be accounted for at Shechem than at Succoth. Okay? So uh, what I think he's doing is he's just wintering at Succoth. Okay? It's wintertime now. We, we know from, from his description of the cattle and the livestock and what they're doing at this point that it's the winter season, and so he needs to find a place to winter. So what I'm assuming is that on his trip down, he's seen Succoth and he's going, this would be a good place to winter. 
But he cannot stop in winter at Succoth yet because he has something of great priority to do, which is what? Pardon? Reconcile with his brother. So, so I think actually the fact that he backtracks to Succoth illustrates again to us how important this issue of reconciliation with his brother was. That even though he's already somewhere in the vicinity of Succoth, he has not yet reconciled with Esau. And so, so he keeps, as we've said the last couple of weeks, he keeps moving forward. He keeps moving towards Esau. He doesn't wait passively for Esau to come to him, but he keeps moving towards Esau. He moves his whole family across the river. He moves everything across the river because he's going to move until he meets Esau and gets reconciled with Esau. Once he's reconciled with Esau, then he can redirect things and, and take care of the other priorities. But the top priority is I keep moving taking the initiative, moving towards my brother until I am reconciled. But once they are reconciled now, he backtracks to Succoth and apparently at least he winters there at Succoth. He builds a house, he builds these uh, uh, booths and, and winters his cattle there. And then we get down to uh, verse 18. It says, Now Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Paden Aram and camped before the city and he bought a piece of land where he had picked, uh, pitched his tent from the hand of the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money and there he erected an altar and called it Elohim, Israel. So now he finally comes to Shechem. What's the significance of coming to Shechem? The most obvious. It's the land of Canaan. He's finally back home. Now, he's not back home home yet as far as being with dad. And that's going to be actually several years yet before he's actually back to dad. Okay, but but he's back in the land of Canaan. But that name Shechem, does that ring a bell? Have we encountered this place before? And by that, when everybody hears me ask that question, they go, well, of course we do. You wouldn't ask the question. <laughs> when have we encountered Shechem before? I don't remember that, but I remember Hamer, because he bought, uh, Abraham bought the, the cave from God, uh, wasn't it? Uh, I well, uh, I don't think that's right, but... but but I'm referring to Shechem here. I'm not referring to the name of a guy. He, he is the name of a guy, but it's also the name of a place. Does the name of that place ring a bell to any of you? That's the first place. Uh, that's the first place Abraham came to when he came to the land of Canaan. Remember clear back in Genesis chapter 12 when we talked about when we were going through Genesis chapter 12 when we talked about Abraham's arrival in the land of Canaan when he first came to Canaan and he went to three places in order Shechem, Bethel, and the Negev. Remember that? And and I took the opportunity to draw some some kind of spiritual application from those three names from those three places I should say. And Shechem as we talked about the life of Abraham Shechem represented the place of commitment. The place of decision. And I'll explain more about that in just a second. But back when we were talking about Abraham, we talked about it. It's the place where he comes after God has said, you go, you just go and I'll show you where to go. And, and he gets to Shechem and then God says, this is the place. 
Okay. So until he gets to Shechem, he doesn't know what what the promised land is. Okay. But when he gets to Shechem, God shows him the land. And he says, "This is the land I'm going to give to you." And there, Abraham builds an altar. It's as if Abraham is saying, "Okay." God, I accept your promises, I claim your promises, and I claim this land because you have promised it to me. It's Abraham's commitment to the promise of God. And then, and then Abraham moves on from there and he goes to Bethel. And at Bethel, it says in chapter 12, Abraham called upon the name of the Lord. That's the first time it says that about Abraham. And so... I suggested to you that Bethel really represents the place of a deeper commitment, a deeper walk, a deeper relationship with God in the life of Abraham. And then he moved on from there and he moves to the Negev and he spends the bulk of his life from that point on living down there in the area of the Negev, Beersheba, the Oaks of Mamre, Hebron, that area down in there, the southern part of Israel. And he spends the bulk of his and he just lives there hour after hour, day after day, week after week, month after month, without an heir, but believing the promises of God. And so the Negev, the Southland, represents that land of living, that, that place of living faithfully in the land, the long haul of believing the promises of God and just living out in the mundaneness of life our faith in the promises of God. Okay? Well, what's striking about Jacob is he follows this same pattern. He comes first to Shechem, and he'll be there too long, as we'll see. But he comes to Shechem, and then he goes on to Bethel. And then from Bethel, eventually he goes on, and he goes back to, to be with his father down in, in Beersheba. And so he follows the same pattern in his life. But as I said, Shechem is a place that represents commitment. It, it did in the life of Abraham. It does in the life of Jacob. It's Jacob coming back home and saying, this is home. I'm back home now. And this is where he finally erects an altar and names that altar Elohe Israel, God the God of Israel, in fulfillment of the vow that he made at Bethel. Okay? So, so this is the place of commitment. This is also the place where Joshua takes all the tribes of Israel and he puts half of them on Mount Gerizim and he puts half of them on Mount Ebal and they pronounce the curses and they pronounce the blessings of the law there at Shechem. It's the place where Israel chooses and decides whether or not they're going to live, live by the law and get the promise of the law or violate the law and live under the curses of the law. It's there in Joshua chapter 24 that Joshua takes them back to Shechem again and he takes them there and he throws out that challenge to him. He says, choose you to this day whom you will serve. Are you going to serve the gods that you left back in Egypt? Are you going to serve the gods of your fathers from beyond the river? That is beyond the Euphrates, the gods of, of Terah and, 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 and all that group. Are you going to serve those gods? But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Okay? It's a place of decision. And it's interesting, too, that it's really the place of the ultimate decision. Because it's at the well of Jacob outside the city of Sychar. In John chapter 4, Sychar, Shechem. It's there at Shechem that Jesus, at the well of Jacob, extends the invitation to the woman of Samaria to drink of the water of life. And there she makes her ultimate choice, her ultimate decision. Shechem is the place of decision. 
and in the life of Jacob and in the life of Abraham and in the life of the woman at the well and in the life of Joshua, it's a very positive place because they made the right choice. But the interesting thing about Shechem is it's also a place of great failure. We're going to see that next week when we look at chapter uh, 34. And we're going to see Levi and Simeon, the two sons of Esau, or two sons of Jacob, their tragic failure there at Shechem. It's there at Shechem where Rehoboam makes his fatal decision not to follow the advice of the older men, but to follow the advice of the younger men and how he will rule Israel and it leads to the it leads to the division of a nation into two groups. It's at Shechem that Jeroboam eventually takes the reign and, and uh, takes, the, takes the throne uh, for the nations of the nation of Israel. Uh, and there are other things. The, the treachery of Abimelech in the book of Judges, Judges chapter 9. It's a place of tragic decisions. You see, because when we come to the Shechems in our life, there are only positive places if we make the right choice. When we come to the point of commitment and the point of decision in our life, it's only good if we make the right choice. But if like Levi and Simeon or like Rehoboam or Jeroboam or Abimelech, if we make the wrong choices, Shechem ends up representing something evil, something ominous, something dark to us. And so we're just forced when we when we confront the idea and the concept of Shechem, we're forced to deal with this reality that the decisions we make in life are oftentimes life-altering, life-changing, and you cannot go back. We always want to think there's a second chance. Sometimes we do get second chances. You know? That's, you know, that's the whole terrible mistake of Rob Bell's recent book, you know that you can make this mistake of rejecting Christ in this life and you'll get a second chance in the next life. But I can tell you, you there are some things you never, just, you never get a second chance for. You never get a second chance on salvation after, after you've passed across the river. And there are other issues in life and other choices that we make in, in our spiritual, spiritual movement that we never get a second chance. That doesn't mean there's not grace for forgiveness. That doesn't mean that God can't transform some of our really evil choices and evil decisions and do something good out of them. And the cross cross of Christ, of course, is a classic example of the transforming power of God. We put that thing up in our sanctuaries and we paint it gold and we, we rejoice in the cross because He's transformed it into something good. But the cross is still and always will be an ugly thing. So there are some decisions that we make that are irrevocable and are devastating. And that's what we confront at Shechem. Well, then finally, here he is at Shechem. For Jacob, he makes the right decision and the right choice. And he erects an altar and he names it Eloha Israel, God the God of Israel. And the significance of that is that when he was at Bethel, when he had that dream at Bethel before he left, and he saw the ladder and the angels coming up and down the ladder and God standing there at the top of the ladder and God speaking to him and God giving a promise to him. So God says, I'm going to go with you and I'm going to be with you everywhere you go and I'm going to bring you back safely to this land. And, and now, as the verse says here uh, in verse 18, that Jacob is brought safely back. So now he's been brought safely back. But after God said that to him at Bethel, Jacob made three promises to God. One of the promises he made was, God, you bring me back and you will be my God. 
You will be my God. And here is Jacob fulfilling his vow. God has brought him back safely to the land of promise. God has brought him back safely to the land of covenant. And Jacob says, God is my God. It's the first time we ever hear Jacob say that. It's where he really owns the Lord as his own God. Okay? Well, next week we'll go on. The story gets kind of dark from here.